That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. With those moving words, humanity set foot on a world other than its own. Today, human spaceflight continues to fascinate and inspire. Hello, my name is Geraldine Goescolar. I am Adjunct Associate Professor of Law at the National University of Singapore. Today, I'd like to discuss the application of international space law to human spaceflight. Human spaceflight refers to travel in outer space with a crew aboard a spacecraft. The first human spaceflight in history was launched on the 12th of April 1961, when the Soviet Union sent cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin into Earth orbit on board Vostok 1. The United States followed with the suborbital flight of Ellen Shepard aboard Freedom 7 on the 5th of May 1961, and the launch of John Glenn into orbit aboard Friendship 7 on the 20th of February 1962. The Soviet Union would go on to launch five more cosmonauts in Vostok capsules, including Valentina Tereshkova, the first woman in space, who was aboard Vostok 6 on the 16th of June 1963. In 1961, United States President John F. Kennedy committed his country to landing a man on the moon and returning him safely by the end of that decade. To meet the president's challenge, the United States initiated Project Gemini and the Apollo program. Ten missions flew under Project Gemini in order to develop orbital spaceflight experience to be used for the moon missions. The Apollo program developed a Saturn family of launch vehicles, including the Saturn V heavy lift rocket that was capable of sending humans to the moon. The Apollo 8 mission sent astronauts Frank Borman, James Lovell, and William Anders into moon orbit in December of 1968. On the 21st of July 1969, Apollo 11 landed astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the lunar surface. A total of seven Apollo missions were flown to the moon, with six successful missions landing a total of 12 astronauts on the lunar surface. Apollo 13 survived a catastrophic in-flight failure, returning astronauts James Lovell, Jack Swigert and Fred Hayes safely to the Earth without landing on the moon. The Soviet Union, in the meantime, achieved the first human spacewalk, an extravehicular activity that was made by cosmonaut Alexei Leonov on the 8th of March 1965. Having successfully developed the three-person Soyuz vehicle for use in lunar missions, the Soviet Union, however, concentrated on the development of orbiting space stations, using the Soyuz as a transport vehicle to take cosmonauts to and from the series of Salyut space stations that it built between 1971 and 1986. The Salyut program was followed by the development and construction of the space station Mir, the first modular, semi-permanent orbiting space station. Mir was built between 1986 and 1996 and was occupied for 4,592 days until it deorbited in a controlled re-entry in 2001. After Apollo 17, the United States turned its attention to orbiting space stations, launching the Skylab space station in 1973. At the same time, the United States focused on the design and construction of a space transportation system based on a reusable space shuttle. A fleet of four space shuttles was built, the space shuttles Columbia, Challenger, Discovery and Atlantis. After the disintegration of the space shuttle Challenger during launch on the 28th of January 1986, it was replaced with the space shuttle Endeavour. The space shuttles carried a European Space Agency space station called Space Lab into orbit on board 22 shuttle flights. The space shuttles were retired in 2011 after 135 orbital flights and the losses of shuttles Challenger and Columbia. 
On the 15th of October 2003, the People's Republic of China became the third nation to achieve independent human spaceflight capability with the launch of Taikonot Yangliwei on a 21-hour flight aboard Shenzhou 5. On the 29th of September 2011, China launched the Tiankong-1 space station, sending two missions to it, Shenzhou 9 in June of 2012, which carried China's first female astronaut Liu Yang, and Shenzhou 10 in June of 2013. Although it remains in orbit, Tiankong-1 was retired on the 21st of March 2016. The awe that human spaceflight inspires belies the fact that it was born out of a space race between two superpowers at the height of the Cold War. Human spaceflight was the child of a high-stakes political game, and international space law reflects that reality. The first provision relating to human spaceflight took shape in Article 5 of the 1967 Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, or the Outer Space Treaty. Article 5 of the Outer Space Treaty provides that astronauts shall be regarded as envoys of mankind in outer space, obliging states' parties to render to them all possible assistance in the event of accident, distress, or emergency landing. More tellingly, Article 5 provides that where astronauts make an emergency landing on the territory of another state party or on the high seas, they shall be safely and promptly returned to the state of registry of their space vehicle. The humanitarian element in Article 5 was the realization of the effective protection of people involved in the exploration of outer space on behalf of humanity. The reality of Article 5 was that it was originally intended to address the Cold War era concerns of the Soviet Union and the United States, that their respective cosmonauts and astronauts would be treated badly were they forced by circumstances to make an emergency landing in the territory of the other state. The urgency of these concerns found relief in the swiftness with which the agreement on the rescue of astronauts, return of astronauts, and the return of objects launched into outer space, or the rescue agreement, was concluded just one year after the Outer Space Treaty. The agreement was adopted by the United Nations General Assembly on the 19th of December 1967, opened for signature on the 22nd of April 1968, and entered into force on the 3rd of December of the same year. The rescue agreement was intended to give further concrete expression to the duties imposed on state parties by the Outer Space Treaty in the rendering of all possible assistance to astronauts in the event of accident, distress or emergency landing, and the safe and prompt return of astronauts. The impetus that propelled the negotiations of the rescue agreement was the expected increase in human spaceflight activities and the imminent likelihood of a landing on the Moon. Moreover, the loss of Vostok cosmonaut trainee Valentin Bodarenko in a fire in the altitude chamber on 23rd of March 1961, the loss of cosmonaut Vladimir Komarov, who was killed in a parachute failure during the Soyuz 1 mission on the 24th of April 1967, and the loss of astronauts Virgil Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger B. Chaffee in a fire during the spacecraft test of Apollo 1 on the 27th of January 1967, brought home the reality of the hazardous nature of spaceflight activities. The rescue agreement followed on legal requirements to give aid to those in danger and difficulty under the international legal regimes applicable to maritime and aviation activities. The same principles and standards apply in outer space as those enunciated in the 1974 International Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea and the 1979 International Convention on Maritime Search and Rescue as well as those in the 1944 Convention on International Civil Aviation. 
to date, 95 states have ratified a rescue agreement, with a further 24 states having signed it. The European Space Agency and the European Organization of the Exploitation for Meteorological Satellites have also deposited instruments with the United Nations declaring their acceptance of the provisions of the rescue agreement. The rescue agreement imposes duties on contracting states to immediately notify the relevant launching authority and the United Nations Secretary-General if it receives information or discovers that the personnel of a spacecraft has suffered an accident or are in distress or have made an emergency landing in territory under its jurisdiction or any other place not under the jurisdiction of any state. The rescue agreement also provides a framework for the rescue and return of the personnel involved. Article 2 of the Rescue Agreement obliges state parties to take all possible steps to rescue them and render any necessary assistance where the personnel have landed in territory under their jurisdiction, including informing both the launching authority and the UN Secretary-General of the steps for rescue being taken, as well as any progress made. Where the personnel have landed or alighted on the high seas or in territory not under the jurisdiction of any state, then Article 3 of the Rescue Agreement requires that contracting parties in a position to extend assistance are to do so if necessary to ensure a quick rescue. The distinction in the obligation to rescue based on the location of the personnel is a result of state practice. For many years, the United States regularly retrieved its astronauts from the Pacific Ocean. The involvement of other states was therefore unnecessary, where the alighting of spacecraft personnel was in a specified drop zone where the launching authority could perform the retrieval. Article 4 of the Rescue Agreement provides that personnel rescued and retrieved in accordance with Articles 2 and 3 are to be returned promptly to representatives of the launching authority. Several interesting legal issues arise in relation to the treatment of astronauts by international space law. The first is the question of what exactly international law means when it refers to an astronaut. There is no established definition of the term astronaut in any legal document, nor has there been agreement on the definition of the term among highly qualified publicists. The three nations with independent human spaceflight capability, China, the Russian Federation and the United States, all have different words for their space travelers. Chinese space travelers are referred to as taikonauts, an anglicization of the Chinese word taikongyuan, despite the fact that the China National Space Administration, or CNSA, refers to them as yuhangyuan. Similarly, Russian space travelers are referred to as cosmonauts. The usage of these three terms does not detract from the status that space travelers receive under international law. State practice supports this interpretation. The United States um, National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA, refers uh, the word astronaut to refer to those selected to join NASA corps of crew members bound for Earth orbit and beyond. However, NASA refers to the professional crew of each mission as commander, pilot, mission specialist, flight engineer, and payload specialist. The Russian Federation does the same, organizing cosmonauts into the categories flight commander, flight engineer, and researcher cosmonaut. However, there have been proposals to distinguish between professional and private participants of spaceflight. According to this distinction, spaceflight participants funded by the public purse and acting on behalf of governments or state agencies would fall within the definition of astronaut, whereas spaceflight participants who paid for their flights with private funds would not. 
Support for this proposition can be found in a term used by the International Space Station partners to differentiate between publicly funded, professionally trained astronauts and privately funded individuals in outer space. Indeed, earlier NASA regulations have also made a similar distinction, referring to astronauts and other persons involved in any flight phase. The United States Commercial Space Launch Amendment Act of 2004 also refers explicitly to spaceflight participants and provides for licensing requirements in the case a launch vehicle carrying a human being for compensation is being used. Similarly, all more recent United States legislation on the topic refer to a distinction between crew and spaceflight participants. We will revisit this issue of privately funded human spaceflight in a moment. A related issue is the altitude to which an individual must fly to qualify as an astronaut. Now, obviously, one must travel in outer space, but where exactly does outer space start? There is no specific definition of outer space in international law or, indeed, in any field of space science and engineering. In international space law, there are two approaches to this conundrum. The first, usually referred to as a specialist approach, considers outer space to begin at a certain altitude above sea level. One suggestion is that outer space would begin at an altitude above that of the von Kármán line. The Earth's atmosphere does not abruptly end at, at a given altitude. Rather, it progressively thins with altitude. The von Kármán line is the altitude at which the speed necessary to aerodynamically support the vehicle's full weight is equivalent to its vo orbital velocity. It is therefore the highest altitude at which a vehicle's orbital speed provides sufficient aerodynamic lift to fly in a straight line that does not follow the curvature of the Earth's surface. This altitude is approximately 100 kilometers above the surface of the Earth, although it varies depending on the density of the atmosphere at a given location and time, as affected by physical factors such as magnetic index and solar flux. Another suggestion made by the International Law Association in 1968 was that outer space should refer to all space at or above the lowest perigee attained as of the 27th of January 1967, the date on which the Outer Space Treaty came into force. Other proposals at the United Nations, including those made by Belgium, Italy and the former Soviet Union, ranged between 90 and 110 kilometers above sea level. In 2002, Australia modified its 1998 Space Activities Act to provide that a license would be required only if the vehicle or payload was intended to reach more than 100 kilometers above sea level. The altitude of 100 kilometers above sea level appears to have support from state practice as a nominal line above which outer space starts. The second approach is known as the functionalist approach. This approach is less concerned with the actual altitude to which a vehicle is launched, but rather focuses on the purposes for which the vehicle or its payload is employed. The idea was that international air law should apply to aviation activities, and international space law should apply to astronautical activities, or activities directed to the exploration and use of outer space. Under this approach, space law would apply in the case of an aborted launch of astronauts to the International Space Station but air law would apply to the carriage of a space shuttle on top of a Boeing 747. To date, there is no agreement on which approach applies in international space law. The second issue of interest relates to the status given to astronauts by Article 5 of the Outer Space Treaty. Article 5 provides that astronauts shall be regarded as envoys of mankind. Does this mean that astronauts are to be regarded as a diplomatic envoy? And do astronauts enjoy diplomatic immunity? The international community has rapidly rejected the idea that astronauts would enjoy the jurisdictional immunities accorded to diplomats. The general consensus today is that the term is only a figure of speech. 
This means that were someone of astronaut status to engage in activities illegal under international law or the respective domestic laws of the territorial state, the status as envoys of mankind does not protect them from prosecution or other penalties as may apply. Thirdly, what is the scope of the obligation to render all possible assistance to astronauts in distress? In an analogous reading with the legal regime governing the high seas, Assistance in this context will be based on the rules of general international law and founded on the principle of necessity. The same principles and standards would apply in outer space as those enunciated in the 1974 International Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea and the 1979 International Convention on Maritime Search and Rescue. The obligation and standard of care would also be interpreted in accordance with the general principles of law, including equity, good faith, reciprocity, the Good Samaritan principle, and liability for failing to rescue in certain cases. Obviously, as in other highly hazardous environments such as Antarctica, or extreme activities such as mountaineering, it is generally accepted that each participant can only be legally obliged to provide assistance to another in the context of life-threatening situations, and if the risk to the rescuer is not unconscionably large. It should be noted here that there have been proposals to establish a fund to defray the costs of any potential rescue or assistance required, which have not seen fruition as of today. A related issue is that the scope of the obligation to render assistance to astronauts in distress appears, under Articles 2 and 3 of the Rescue Agreement, to be limited specifically to situations where the personnel have alighted. This excludes the most common instance where a rescue might be needed, where there are in-flight difficulties either during spaceflight, in orbit, or on longer missions. An example that comes to mind is the rupture of the liquid oxygen tank that crippled the Apollo 13 mission to the Moon. In this case, beyond general humanitarian principles, there is no provision in a rescue agreement that states parties are to render assistance. The only legal provision is that in Article 5 of the Outer Space Treaty, which is a general provision that astronauts of states' parties, not states' parties themselves, are to render all possible assistance to other astronauts in distress. Now, where astronauts are in distress on the Moon or on other celestial bodies within the solar system other than the Earth, Article 10 of the 1979 Agreement governing the activities of states on the Moon and other celestial bodies, or the Moon Agreement, applies. Article 10 obliges states' parties to take all practicable measures to safeguard the life and health of persons on the Moon and other celestial bodies within the solar system other than the Earth, and to offer shelter in their stations and installations to those in distress. Moreover, Article 12 of the Moon Agreement provides that, in an emergency situation involving a threat to life, a state party may use the equipment, vehicles, installations, facilities or supplies of another state party. Despite the low number of ratifications of the Moon Agreement, these provisions accord with the general international law principles relating to the humanitarian obligation to render assistance to those in distress. Therefore, despite the catchy ring it has to it, Mark Watney, the protagonist of the 2015 science fiction film The Martian, could never have qualified as a space pirate. I'll say no more to avoid spoiling the film for those of us who have not seen it. What international law applies to astronauts include space stations. Until 1998, ironically, international law had very little to do with space stations that had been launched into Earth orbit. The reason was that each and every space station launched till then had been constructed by either the former Soviet Union or the United States, 
meaning that those states had jurisdiction and control over their respective space stations, pursuant to Article 8 of the Outer Space Treaty. That situation changed with the construction and launch of the International Space Station, or ISS. On the 20th of November 1998, the first ISS module, Zarya, was launched into orbit by a proton rocket. Two weeks later, on the 4th of December 1998, Unity, the second ISS module, was brought by the SCS-88 shuttle mission on board the Space Shuttle Endeavour and connected to Zarya. On the 12th of July 2000, the Russian module Zvezda was launched and added, allowing the ISS to be permanently crewed. The International Space Station is the largest space station that humanity has constructed to date, measuring some 109 meters from end to end, with a solar array wingspan of 73 meters across. Astronauts on board the station lived in pressurized habitats approximately the size of the interior cabin of a Boeing 747 jumbo jet. The first crew of the International Space Station was launched on the 31st of October 2000. Since that date, we have witnessed continuous human presence in space. The space station is permanently staffed by six astronauts and is large enough to be seen from the surface of the Earth with the naked eye. The ISS is an orbiting research laboratory orbiting the Earth at an altitude of between 300 and 410 kilometers in what is called low Earth orbit. The ISS allows science experiments to be carried out in a microgravity environment and also provides an opportunity to test the human ability to live in outer space for extended periods of time. Plans for the ISS began in 1984 at the G7 meeting, when United States President Ronald Reagan invited a number of states to join the United States in the development and assembly of an orbiting space station. This invitation was answered by Japan, Canada, and certain member states of the European Space Agency, ESA. With development underway in the 1990s, budget constraints led to a restructuring of the ISS program with the incorporation of Russia as a partner. Today, the ISS is the largest international cooperative endeavor in history, involving 15 partner states that signed the ISS Intergovernmental Agreement on the 29th of January 1998. The 15 partner states are Canada, Japan, Russia, the United States, and 11 European states members of the European Space Agency which are Belgium, Denmark, France, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Norway, Spain, Sweden, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom. The European Space Agency, ESA, acts as the European partner on behalf of these 11 European states. Each partner and cooperating agency provides a contribution proportionate to its technological and financial resources. For example, Canada has provided a robotic arm, Canada Arm 2, and a special-purpose dexterous manipulator known as the Canada Hand. Japan provided a Kibo experimental module and the transfer vehicle that resupplies it. The partner state members of the European Space Agency have contributed the Columbus Laboratory and the automated transfer vehicle. Russia has provided the Zarya cargo and the Zvezda service modules, the solar arrays, the Soyuz launch vehicles, and the Proton and Soyuz capsules, which are currently the only means of transporting the crew to and from the station. The United States bears the majority of the expenses for the maintenance and operations of the ISS, and has provided a Unity Connector module and the Harmony Utility Hub, solar arrays, the Destiny Research Laboratory, and the Cygnus and Dragon cargo vehicles. Until the retirement of the Space Shuttle fleet in 2011, the United States also provided the fleet as a means of transportation and construction. There are four levels of agreements relating to the ISS. 
1998 ISS Intergovernmental Agreement provides the top-level specific legal regime applicable to the ISS and ISS-related activities. Under the framework of this intergovernmental agreement, a series of Memoranda of Understanding, or MOUs, have been concluded between the cooperating space agencies of the state's parties regarding the contribution of each agency to the ISS. The third level comprises implementing arrangements between the agencies of the state's parties, and the last level consists of contracts and subcontracts between those agencies and private industry, including those relating to the commercial uses of the ISS and to intellectual property rights. The ISS Intergovernmental Agreement establishes that the ISS is to be used for peaceful purposes, in accordance with international law, and that the station should further the scientific, technological and commercial use of outer space. There are several legal issues of interest in the regime established by the ISS Intergovernmental Agreement. First, that relating to registration and jurisdiction, and more specifically to criminal jurisdiction. Secondly, that relating to liability. And lastly, that relating to intellectual property rights. Now, let's look at them in turn. In relation to registration and jurisdiction, the ISS Intergovernmental Agreement echoes the provision in Article 8 of the 1967 Outer Space Treaty and the 1975 Convention on the Registration of Objects Launched into Outer Space, that it is the state of registry of a space object that retains jurisdiction and control over the space object in question. Article 5 of the Intergovernmental Agreement provides that each partner shall register as space objects the flight elements listed in the annex which it provides, a reflection both of the international character of the undertaking and the technical reality that the ISS would be assembled in space over an extended period of time. Article 5, paragraph 2 of the Intergovernmental Agreement gives the State of Registry the right to exercise jurisdiction over personnel in or on the space station who are its nationals. Now, two interesting points arise here. The first relates to the approach taken to the registration and jurisdiction over the European modules. Although the 11 European states are party to the Intergovernmental Agreement, they have jointly appointed the European Space Agency, ESA, as their collective representative. Consequently, the European components have been registered by ESA. Jurisdiction and control over those components, however, have necessitated internal agreements among the member states of ESA participating in the ISS project, since ESA is not a sovereign state that can exercise such jurisdiction and control. Secondly, potential problems may arise from possible overlaps in jurisdiction, such as where a Canadian astronaut is working on a Russian module. With the exception of criminal jurisdiction, these problems are likely to be resolved in a manner similar to that of competing jurisdictions on Earth. As mentioned, the question of criminal jurisdiction is particular under the ISS Intergovernmental Agreement. Personal jurisdiction has priority in criminal matters, and ISS partner states exercise criminal jurisdiction over personnel who are their nationals. This also applies to the European partner states, which may exercise criminal jurisdiction over personnel in or on any flight element who are their respective nationals. Where damage is caused to a flight element of a partner state by an individual of a different nationality, the partner state with jurisdiction over the flight element by way of registration is also entitled to exercise jurisdiction, but may only do so where the state of nationality of the individual agrees to such an exercise of jurisdiction. This again raises issues with regard to the European partner, where it is unclear whether the European module would qualify as a flight element of a partner state. Practically speaking, however, where the European module is the location of an alleged crime, 
primary or subsidiary criminal jurisdiction would simply revert to the appropriate European partner state. The second point of interest relates to liability. The ISS Intergovernmental Agreement provides for a sui generis regime concerning liability. Article 17 of the agreement provides that it does not derogate from the existing international legal framework regarding liability, meaning that the 1972 Convention on International Liability for Damage Caused by Space Objects continues to apply. However, Article 16 establishes the specific framework applicable to activities undertaken within the space station and any potential damage that may arise as a result of those activities. Article 16 is intended as lex specialis and provides for a general cross-wave of liability between the signatories of the ISS Intergovernmental Agreement for all damage suffered in the context of what is termed protected space operations on the station. Protected space operations refers to all launch vehicle activities, space station activities and payload activities on Earth, in outer space or in transit between Earth and outer space in the implementation of the space station project. It includes research, design, development, test, manufacture, assembly, integration, operation and use of launch or transfer vehicles or the station itself or a payload, as well as related support equipment, facilities and services, and all other activities related to ground support, testing, training, simulation or related facilities and services. The cross waiver is also to apply to all contractors, subcontractors, users and customers of a partner state. Only bodily injury, willful misconduct and intellectual property rights are excluded from this cross waiver. This broad waiver of liability regime has worked well in practice, although it has been the subject of much criticism. Concerns about this cross-waiver regime include apprehensions that it may impede access to justice by individuals, as well as general disquiet that this method of dealing with liability does not assist in the development of the law. The third point of interest in the ISS Intergovernmental Agreement framework relates to the management of intellectual property rights. In the context of the International Space Station, patent rights are of particular importance. The microgravity environment of the International Space Station is expected to allow the development of future products, in particular in the medical, pharmaceutical and materials sectors. Article 21, paragraph 2 of the Intergovernmental Agreement provides that the patent laws of the ISS partner state that registered the flight element in which the invention took place may be made to apply to the patenting of that invention. Therefore, the space station comprises a series of modules concatenating various different national laws. Different intellectual property laws apply to each component of the space station. For example, the United States has promulgated the Patents in Outer Space Act, which extends the scope of existing US patent law to inventions made on board US registered space objects. Again, the European partners' flight elements have a unique solution to the issue of intellectual property rights. Article 21, paragraph 2 of the Intergovernmental Agreement also provides that inventions occurring in or on the European flight elements are considered to have taken place in all European partner states simultaneously. This makes it possible that the various laws of all 11 European partner states apply to activities occurring in or on the European station elements. Each European partner state individually regulates the manner in which intellectual property rights are protected in their jurisdiction. To date, Germany and Italy have explicitly made their intellectual property legislation applicable to inventions on board the European module, requiring such inventions to first be registered under German or Italian law respectively in order to obtain the applicable protection. 
through the mechanisms of the European Union and the European Union law, as well as international treaty laws, the protection is then extended to most of the other states in the world through, for example, the 1883 Convention for the Protection of Industrial Property and its 1967 revision, 1970 Patent Cooperation Treaty, and the 1973 Convention on the Grant of European Patents. A point of note arises in Article 21, Paragraph 4 of the Intergovernmental Agreement, which includes a provision which prevents one act of infringement of intellectual property rights from being raised in different jurisdictions in different ESA member states. Article 21, Paragraph 4 therefore provides that, where the intellectual property is protected in more than one European partner state, the owner of that right may not recover in more than one such state for the same act of infringement. The owner of that right has the choice as to which forum to select in deciding where to pursue the claim. This may, however, lead to forum shopping, which is not ideal. As of the date this lecture was recorded, more than 550 people have flown in out to space. Until 2001, these were almost entirely comprised of career astronauts launched with public funds, as well as a Japanese journalist and an English engineer. Now, this changed on the 28th of April 2001, when Dennis Tito joined the Soyuz TM-32 mission, spending almost eight days in outer space. Tito privately funded the 20 million US dollar trip himself, becoming the first of seven orbital space tourists. On the 21st of June 2004, the White Knight 1, a privately funded carrier aircraft built by Scale Composites, flew to nearly 17 kilometers altitude above the Mojave Desert in California, in the United States. There, it launched a rocket-powered craft, Spaceship One, to an altitude of over 100 kilometers. The pilot, Michael Melville, became the first person to travel in outer space on a fully commercially funded spaceflight. The feat was repeated on the 4th of October of the same year, 47 years to the day of the launch of the world's first artificial satellite, winning the 10 million US dollar Ansari X Prize for Scale Composites. Since then, Scale Composites has been in partnership with Virgin Galactic with the aim of building a fleet of commercial spacecraft to provide suborbital spaceflight to tourists and to science missions. Tragedy struck on the 31st of October 2014 with the in-flight loss of Spaceship 2 VSS Enterprise as a result of a premature deployment of the feathering mechanism, which is normally used to assist in a safe descent. The crash, which killed co-pilot Michael Ellsbury, led to the United States National Transportation Safety Board to recommend that the Federal Aviation Administration establish human factors guidance specific to commercial spaceflight operations and to create a more rigorous application process for experimental spaceflight permits. Today, there are many commercial space transportation companies that offer launch services and which intend to offer private crewed launches. These include Space Adventures, Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic, and SpaceX. Some companies, such as Bigelow Aerospace, are experimenting with space hotels, inflatable modular habitats for long-duration space flights. Still others, such as Interplanetary Transport System and Mars One, aim at crewed interplanetary travel. Presently, however, there is no specific international legal framework that regulates commercial human spaceflight. Any semblance of an attempt at regulatory frameworks can only be channeled through Article 6 of the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, which provides that states bear international responsibility for national activities in outer space, whether such activities are carried on by governmental agencies or by non-governmental entities, and which obliges state parties to authorize and continuously supervise such activities. 
Similarly, liability for damage is governed by Article 7 of the Outer Space Treaty, read with the 1972 Convention on International Liability for Damage Caused by Space Objects. Just as questions of jurisdiction and control are resolved by Article 8 of the Outer Space Treaty, read in conjunction with the 1975 Registration Convention. A more basic question that arises is whether international air law or international space law would apply in the case of a suborbital flight. And where does outer space start? Does international law take the spatialist or functionalist approach in defining outer space? Does international space law apply simply because a private entity defines its activities as space activities? Here, state practice is of little help. The only state that has promulgated legislation specifically addressing the commercial spaceflight industry is the United States. However, this legislation, originally promulgated in the 1980s to stimulate private investment in the launch service sector, generally applies to all commercial spaceflight and is not specific to crude commercial spaceflight. Thus, the 1984 Commercial Space Launch Act, as amended in 1988, requires private companies with the United States nationality or launching from US territory to obtain a license for each intended individual launch. This license would be granted only if the company could fulfill a number of criteria imposed, including conditions related to national security and public health and safety. Among the criteria was also the requirement that companies take out third-party liability insurance in the case of damage caused by their space activities, although the United States government would reimburse the licensee for third-party claims above 1.5 billion US dollars. An obligatory cross-waiver of liability was also imposed between the launch service provider and any other contractual party. There was, however, no requirements relating to the certification of hardware or personnel involved, a regime that is markedly different than that in international aviation, which imposes mandatory certificates of airworthiness and personnel qualifications. In 2004, the United States adopted the Commercial Space Launch Amendments Act, which aimed to address liability, government indemnification, and licensing issues arising out of reusable launch vehicles. The approach taken to crude commercial space flights, however, was that regulatory standards governing such flights should evolve as the industry matures, so as not to stifle technology development or to expose crew and spaceflight participants to avoidable risks. The 2004 Act extended licensing obligations to apply also to re-entry of vehicles and not only to launches. An innovation in the 2004 Act was the provision for the first time of experimental permits as an alternative to launch licenses. These permits would allow for research and development to test new design concepts, equipment or operating techniques, to show compliance with requirements for obtaining a license and for crew training. The 2004 Act also required an operator of crewed commercial space flights to obtain informed consent of the passenger before a license to fly or launch was granted. Informed consent, a term borrowed from the extreme sports sector, is a mechanism that replaces certification and safety regulations in the aviation industry. This requires the operator to inform the spaceflight participant in writing about the risks of launch and re-entry including the safety record of the launch and vehicle type, and that the vehicle is not certified as safe for crewed flight by the United States government. Essentially, space tourists are warn warned and informed in writing that they have signed up for an ultra-hazardous activity, and that they participate in this activity knowing full well that they risk serious bodily injury and possible death. This is the state of legal regulation today. 
Given the relative youth of the commercial spaceflight industry, it is perhaps unsurprising that the relevant legal regime is underdeveloped. However, as commercial spaceflight companies gear up to send passengers into space, whether on suborbital, orbital, or long-duration missions, an international legal framework akin to that already in place for aviation may be preferable. Issues that this framework should address include certifications of flightworthiness, standards of compensation in the case of death, bodily injury or damage to property, third-party liability, and minimum international safety standards. As astronaut John Young said, anyone who sits on top of the largest hydrogen-oxygen fuel system in the world, knowing they're going to like the bottom and doesn't get a little worried, doesn't fully understand the situation. Although the vehicles currently in direct development for crewed commercial flights do not involve large rockets, it is foreseeable that in the near future, commercial companies may conceive of sending humans on heavy-lift rockets capable of reaching the Moon and Mars. In December of 1972, NASA's Apollo 17 astronauts Harrison Schmidt and Eugene Cernan spent about 75 hours on the surface of the Moon. Apollo 17 also marked the last time to date that humans have traveled beyond low Earth orbit. This may be about to change. On the 6th of February 2018, SpaceX successfully launched their Falcon Heavy rocket from Kennedy Space Center in Florida. The Falcon Heavy is the most powerful operational rocket in the world by a factor of two, able to lift a fully loaded jumbo jet into orbit. The 6th February 2018 launch carried with it an automobile and a mannequin, which were last seen on their way to the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. It is now not too far-fetched that the near future may see the launch of humans on a crewed interplanetary mission. When that day comes, international law should be prepared. The physicist Stephen Hawking has stated his belief that the long-term future of the human race is in outer space. In April of 1970, the crew of NASA's Apollo 13 mission orbited the far side of the Moon at an altitude of 254 kilometers. This placed them 400,171 kilometers away from Earth, the furthest that our species has ever been from our home. International law has the unparalleled opportunity to contribute to the long-term survival of our species by providing a proper legal incubator within which the development of human spaceflight can take place. In regulating issues relating to human spaceflight, whether by public or private entities, international space law can assure the safe evolution of human spaceflight technologies and experience through the fostering of transparency, confidence building, international cooperation, and reasonable minimum international standards. Thank you.